Welcome to the New Life Ministries podcast. When thinking about salvation, it can be easy to think that some people are destined to be saved and some people aren't. Throughout the Old Testament, the nations and leaders that stood against God and his people seemed to be destined not to be saved and that they were just bad people that God rejected. At the same time, God's promise to his people Israel seemed to state that they were. But what about the Israelites who turned their back on God? And how does Jesus fit into this equation? As with everything, life is more complicated than that. While God selects some people for special tasks, those that are selected still need to choose to accept, and those that aren't selected are not excluded from accepting. God will never remove our free choice from the equation. Let's join Curtis as he discusses Romans 9. Well, good morning to those of you joining us online. Welcome. Glad you've joined us. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 9. If you want to turn to it in your Bible or open it up on your phone or whatever other options you would have. Those are the two I guess we got right now. Have you heard uh, the you have you heard about the two terms, the visible church and the invisible church? Have you heard those words before? So it's it's a way to describe something. Visible church and the invisible church. There are those in a church who are seen, those who are visible, they're part of the crowd. They likely refer to themselves as Christians. But we understand that not all of them, who sh- not everyone who shows up at a church gathering as part of a church community, not everyone might be a disciple. Within the visible church, there is an invisible church, the true group of disciples. And this, we use this difference to talk about the invisible, we talk about the visible and the invisible church to explain why some churches might behave in ways that don't seem to align with the teachings of Jesus, or why people within a church might spend their whole life in a way that seems to completely ignore Jesus. They're present, but they're not actually a disciple. Now, this is not a problem today like it was a couple generations ago because our culture does not assume that people are Christian and doesn't put any cultural expectation that you should go to a church or be part of a church. But the idea is the visible church is larger and it can behave in one way, but within it is the invisible church, the crowd of true disciples. The invisible church very quietly carries on the mission of Jesus. It reaches into dark places, places full of chaos, and it brings light and life. The invisible church is working on discipling new folks. It's gathering to worship and give thanks, to pray, to ask Jesus for help, and then goes into the world to represent Jesus. This is not a new phenomenon. It's always been true of God's people. And in today's passage, it's going to talk about how this was true also for the nation of Israel in the time of history that is covered by the Old Testament. They also had kind of a visible Israel and an invisible Israel, although we we don't actually use that term. So we're looking to the book of Romans, right? Paul's letter to a church that was comprised of Christians that were Roman and Gentile and Christians that were Jewish. And we've learned that We are all made right before God by an act of God himself, by his grace towards us. And we receive it by trusting in Jesus, trusting that Jesus has taken care of the problem that has separated us from the Father. In the next couple of chapters, Paul's going to look at a question that he's only kind of hinted at up to this point, which is, what about Israel? 
Like, what about Old Testament Israel? What about the promises to the Jews, the nations, the promises he made throughout Scripture? Because God had promised that Israel would be his special people. And through their behavior, as they obeyed God, the world would see what God is like, and God would work through the nation of Israel to bring his blessing to the world. But now we have the story of Jesus. And so there's this question, did God break his promise to Israel? Is God faithful to his own word? Because it seems like his plan has changed. And so today we get the first part of the answer, which is what does it mean to be called to be his people? What is it to be elected to be his people? Because they had developed a misunderstanding and Paul's gonna write to explain or correct that misunderstanding. And I'll tell you now, it's a bit of a confusing uh, chapter because Paul is grabbing one line from scripture from all over the place. So he's grabbing it from here and grabbing it from there and just assuming that if he gives you this one sentence, you'll know exactly what he's talking about. And that's not as true today as it was back then. So if you hear this passage and you go, what? We'll work it through. So, make sense? Let me offer a prayer and, um, and we'll tackle it. Father, would you please speak to us as you would have each of us learn? Would you please um, teach us together for what you would have us learn? That we would continue to grow to be your people and to have an understanding of you and how you work um, so that we see you truthfully, that we can praise you and glorify you, and also that it would calm down some of the questions that might nag us or, or come to mind. Glorify yourself. Amen. So Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read for the New Living Translation. So this is Paul speaking. I speak the truth. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, for those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, he's quoting. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's children. For this is how the promise was stated. Again, another quote. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, another quote, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Why then does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Another quote. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does the potter not have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Although the number of the Israelites be like sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. We'll stop there. So Paul is quoting lines quickly from all different places in the Old Testament, assuming you know these stories. So let's reacquaint and remind ourselves. The story of Israel starts with Abraham. Back in the book of Genesis, back in chapter 12, God calls Abraham to follow him. And God promises Abraham that he will make his name great, he will make him into a great nation, and those who bless him will be blessed, those who curse him will be cursed. Or... God will work through Abraham and his family to bless the world, to reach the world. And Abraham responds by trusting, trusting that what God says will happen, will happen, which is the essence of faith, right? But time goes by, Abraham has no children. He's getting old, quite old. How does he become a great nation if he has no children? So he decides to solve the problem himself by having a child with his wife's servant. And this produces Ishmael. But God had promised that it was his wife, Sarah, who would have the son. And that would be the line of descendants through whom he would work. That child is Isaac. And so God does not select Ishmael. He selects Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah has twins. Esau is the firstborn. The second, Jacob, though, Jacob's the one that God selects to work salvation history through. And what the text is getting at is that God did not select to work on a situation because of a human solution to the problem. God chose to work through the miracle that he had promised, period. So that's why in verse 8 it says, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. It is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And the passage is also saying God did not select 
who he was going to work with because one was doing good things and one was doing bad things. God selected them while they were in the womb before anything good or bad could even happen. So in verse 11 we get, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So God is making a decision by his own free will of how history, salvation history, is going to move forward. And God, by his own free will, selects a very specific bloodline. He elects them. He elects to use them. And then through that line of people, he creates a nation, and he will walk with that nation in a special way. And he blesses them, and he works through them, and when they are unfaithful, he disciplines them, And we can read the history of that relationship all through the Old Testament. And it leads to the birth of Jesus, who's the Messiah. But a misunderstanding begins to show up. And Paul knows the question is coming, and it dances with this word, election. So Paul says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what's the misunderstanding? What would make God unjust? Because it sounds like what he's saying is, how can people be guilty for not being part of God's people on earth if God does not choose to include them as his people? And so the misunderstanding is to assume that when God elects somebody, it guarantees that they are saved. And if he doesn't elect somebody, it guarantees that they are not saved. And that's the misunderstanding. Sometimes God acts in a very special way to a person, to a group of people for his salvation plans. We've heard stories in other parts of the world where, uh, in fact, we have stories here, where all of a sudden one night God will speak to a person in a dream and say, I am Jesus, come find me. Just out of the blue, God selects to work in a very special way to call a person into his family. God elects them then to a role. And within that role, they have to choose how they're going to respond, by faith or not by faith. For other folks, they respond to God as God works through his special group of people. That's the normal way. It does not mean that people who are not called in a special way have no opportunity ever to connect with God. And some of the folks in Old Testament Israel seemed to think that because they played a special role in salvation history, and the Jews played a very special role, it meant that they were automatically always going to have God on their side no matter what they ever did. And that is not true. And so we kind of get this invisible group of true Israel within the larger group of visual, visible Israel. Um, And that question, if I'm part of the visible group, doesn't that automatically mean that I am faithful and included in what is invisible? No, it's not true. So applied today, imagine a person who goes to church every Sunday their whole life and assume because their parents were Christian and they were born in a Christian home, then of course they're going to heaven. That assumption is not true. 
So the passage uses this phrase, children of promise, that those who are part of the kingdom of God are those who are responding and trusting what God is saying. Abraham trusted that God would make him into a nation and provide a son, and we trust that Jesus is taking care of the problem of our sin. It's trust, that act of faith, is to, is to respond to God. So one question to sit with, if you've been raised in a, in a place worth a special blessing, if you've been raised part of a church where you've had the opportunity to learn scripture, or you've heard the examples from other people of how they walk with Jesus, or perhaps people have chosen to mentor you and coach you in how to walk with Jesus. If you've had kind of a special blessing growing up, are you taking responsibility for that blessing and living it out? Are you using that special experience as a way to help others discover Jesus or grow in their understanding of Jesus or help what God is doing in the world? Because God creates a group of people so he can work through them to save the world through them. It's all, it's all tied to relationship. And, and yeah, I'll save that thought. So this is the call for election. It's not, it's not that we receive a blessing without also receiving a responsibility. And this is the mistake that people were making. Election. The other side are those to whom God does not show special mercy. And so he talks about Pharaoh and hardening Pharaoh's heart, meaning that Pharaoh was not gonna soften and submit to God. And he uses the illustration of, he talks about Pharaoh to illustrate a point, that sometimes God has other purposes, other ways that he intends to reveal his glory and his work in the world. And so you might ask, and people have asked, how can Pharaoh be guilty? If God chooses not to soften Pharaoh's heart, not to show him mercy, how can Pharaoh be guilty? And we have to remember the human condition is that we are all born under sin, and that's our fault. We naturally disobey God. We chose to rebel. And so we did this to ourselves. God did not create the fallen state that we're in. God did not take basically a good guy, Pharaoh, and then make Pharaoh into a bad guy. Pharaoh was a bad guy. God chose not to soften his heart so that he could become a good guy. And if we go back to the book of Genesis and, and look through the story, you'll find that Pharaoh is hardening his heart as much as God is hardening his heart. Pharaoh is an active participant in what he's doing. He does not like what Moses and God is doing, and he is setting himself up against it. So in verse 22, it says, God bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction. It doesn't say he prepared them for destruction. It means they prepared themselves. Their sin prepared them. Why I mention it all of this is we want to avoid something called double predestination. And double predestination means that God destines some people to spend eternity with him and God has predestined some people to spend eternity apart from him. You know, that God has just left them to be condemned and they'll spend eternity being punished and they had no choice. That is not the teaching of scripture. Why does this matter? I'm hankering on some theology here. Why does this matter? 
because Paul is writing to engage people in ministry. That's part of what he's doing. If you believe that God has predestined some folks to spend eternity without them, without God, what motivation would you have to tell them about Jesus? What motivation would you have to help them? Because, hey, they're condemned already. Nothing I can do about it. If you believe already that God has predestined some people to spend eternity without him, your response would be like, wow, I'm really thankful for my choosing. Oh, well. Like it, it's, that doesn't represent the character of God anymore. Your prayers might become something like, Lord, if there's somebody you want me to talk to Jesus about, please bring them to, to my attention. Otherwise, I'll just wait around until you do something. If you believe, though, it's not a done deal, that they have yet time to respond to Jesus and to become part of his work of renewal on the planet, you have a role then to do something. And it goes back to our role in salvation history. If God's brought you into a group of people who he intends to show himself to the world through, you've got to participate in that. We've been elected to represent God. We've been saved to represent God. We have to do something. So in verse 21, it says, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some for special purpose and some for common use? That idea of special purpose is part of the meaning of the word holy, being holy, being set apart for special use. God will use his people to help others discover who he is and what he's about. So you have a special purpose now. What do you think is involved in that special purpose? For you, what do you think is involved in your new special purpose? You might think, who are the people who are watching your life? Who are watching to see what it looks like for you to follow Jesus? Because that is helping them understand what, what God is like. When you pray for them, are you praying for them? Are you talking with these folks who are watching your life and being honest about what God is doing in your life? About how you feel free from forgiveness or how you feel renewed or the new life that you feel you've discovered? Like, are you aware that as you live your day, God intends to work through you to help others find him? And at the same time, what is the area of creation that needs God's help, God's blessing, and that God keeps drawing your attention to? And it's an area that somehow you feel gifted with. and You just feel like God is always calling me to work in this area on the planet that is surrounded in darkness and chaos. I just feel like God wants me to be part of fixing the problem. That is the special purpose. So if we go back to the issue that Paul started with, what about Israel? Was God not faithful to his word, his promises to Israel? Because they were to be the great nation. Did God change his mind? And the passage ends with a series of quotes from Old Testament prophets that say, God had always intended the Gentiles to become part of the community of God. They were always intended to be part of salvation history. It was always his intention to save more than Israel. And it was always God's plan 
to reduce, no, it was also God's intent to discipline his people and reduce their numbers. Because he is removing out of his people group people who are not actually faithful to him. God had always intended of taking the invisible community of people and making it the prime and getting rid of those who were there by name or there by culture, but were not actually followers. So God hasn't broken his word. He's doing exactly what he intended. So let me summarize and we'll talk about uh, what we've been, what, what's caught your attention. So for Paul, who's writing Romans, he's beginning to address this question. If we come to God through Jesus now, what about Israel? Did God change his mind and break his promise? No. God elected some folks to play a special role in salvation history, and he gave them special treatment so they could play that special purpose. But that doesn't automatically mean they're going to be saved. They have to respond to that call with their own faith and trust, and from that trust, their obedience. There is an invisible faithful group within a larger visible crowd. And when he selects those people for a special role, when, uh, when he selects those people for a special role, it does not mean people who are not selected are going to be condemned. Because that's double predestination, and Scripture does not teach that. Those folks have the opportunity to come to know God as God works through his special group, which in the Old Testament was Israel, and now is the church, which is Gentiles and Jews come together. So for us, whether you were blessed growing up, surrounded by Christians and learning scripture, or whether you are just coming to Christ now, you are now part of salvation history. And God intends to work through you to bless others. So what is he putting right in front of you that he wants, to, he wants you to be involved with? Who is he putting right in front of you that he wants you to be involved with? So that's the first part of what this Roman section is getting into. What, um, what has the Holy Spirit kind of been drawing your attention to? How has he been uh, sort of speaking to you or, or where has your mind been engaging through this part of our text? There's a lot in there. And I'm trying to find the logic in what you're saying. Okay, keep going. I think where I'm at now in my understanding and, and whether logic is the best way to approach it or not is kind of a separate question. So it seems like God elects for a special purpose certain people. Those people then have a choice of whether they want to respond in faith to that election or not. Those who respond in faith become the invisible part, and those who don't respond and respond become the visible together. So the visible includes everyone. Those who have been elected for this special purpose have a choice, but those who have not been elected, who are not part of that special group, also have a choice they have a choice to respond to the responsibility of that elected group. The responsibility is to be a light for God. And then these un, the people who have not been selected for a special purpose can respond. So then they can become part of the invisible group. And in the Old Testament, that was Israel. And the New Testament, that's the church. 
so election for a special purpose is not the same as salvation. However, when someone who was not selected for special purpose responds, now they gain that special purpose. Is that, that's the piece that I... Yeah, that's, that's it. Okay. So the other side of it, and if you want to add, just gather your thoughts. By understanding that you, when God elects a crowd, like so God selected Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, 12 kids, 12 kids, the nation of Israel, millions of people. Um, if we believe that election is also salvation, we might look to the behavior of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and go, Jacob, and go, well, that's how we are to behave. Because God elected them, they're saved. That must be. But if you read their stories, you'll you'll read their story and go, that's how I'm supposed to behave? Like these guys did crazy things. Um, and it's like, actually, no, they they had to still come to terms. Like Jacob had to come to terms with submitting to God even after he had 12 kids and after he's part of the community. And that's when he's starting to wrestle and submit because God is using them, using his family line for God's purposes, <laughs> whether Jacob wanted it or not. Yep. Not everybody knows the story, but there's a story in the, in the Old Testament that has always uh, impressed me. Here were the children of Israel in Egypt, slaves. Slaves for years and years and years. How many years, Curtis? 430. 430 years they were slaves. And so they came out of there, and they went into the uh, area close to the promised land that God had promised them. And there was one woman there. She was evil, really evil. She was probably the worst possible candidate to come to live for God. Well, it turned out that there were that um, there were some spies sent into the land that God had promised them, and they, they had um, the cities had huge walls around them, very well protected, and the spies got into one of these cities, and there they they needed to hide. And so they came to this really evil person, this woman. She was a prostitute, by the way. And um, she would have thought that she was the very, very last person that God would ever approve of. And um, she said to them, I know your God because I saw what he did. And he has power. And then she showed her faith in God as, as a result of her faith and trust. God selected her. And actually, she helped the spies escape back to Israel. And, um, and she became one of the ancestors of Jesus himself which was so unlikely. So when it doesn't matter how bad you are, it doesn't matter how many bad things you've done, if you choose to trust God, you've got it made. And that lady's name was what, Curtis? It's Rahab, isn't it? Isn't it Rahab? 
Rahab, yep. Rahab, yeah. The sea monster. That's good. You spoke about the confusion around election. And I, th I think that there is confusion about a lot of scripture. Uh, uh, um, you know, and you know, you're talking about one of one of the, the big ones that I, that I see in the evangelical church. My opinion, maybe my confusion, but uh, uh, when when we talk when we talk about Israel, that I I see a lot a lot of special evangelical Christians equating biblical Israel with Israel, the nation today. There is no uh, uh, good point. It's not the same thing at all. But, uh, um, and I still, you know, struggle in your explanation, uh, you know, about, you know, like Pharaoh, God hardened his heart because he was a bad guy. And so, you know, or who's writing this? Paul? You know, Paul was no, no saint, that's for sure. That's for sure. And yet, God chose to to use him, to, you know, hugely. That that uh, uh, um, and there's no indication in, in anything that you know, have, you know, Paul's own account that he had, you know, that he had uh, uh, chosen to become what he became. It just, God chose him and that's it. And, and it's not, not a matter of, of anyone choosing necessarily to follow, you know, necessarily choosing to follow God for God to choose them. It's, it's uh, the, two, the two aren't necessarily aligned. In some cases they are, but be interesting to find out what happened to Pharaoh after the Exodus story, um, because we know that Pharaoh's hard heart was hardened up to that point. But when it was all done and Israel was gone, it'd be interesting to know what what happened to him then. Right? The story's never over. Anyway, I guess two things and just responses to some of the other comments. My understanding, and this is not something that's that was clear to start with from growing up in you know, Christian situation. Um, but it's become really clear to me that one of the most important, high-value, precious things to God is our free will. And our He protects our ability and He honors our ability to choose even when we make crappy choices. It's so important that He actually doesn't override and intervene most of the time. And He lets us, like, do make terrible decisions that hurt many, many, many people not just Hitler, but others who have made these decisions, who have decimated entire, entire people groups because the free will is so important to him that it's not very often that he overrides it. And I, I think you can, because of that, you can be assured that even when he does a direct intervention like with Paul, that whole road to Damascus thing where Paul was actually on the way to kill Christians, that was his job description for the week. And God was like, 
no, just stop that. That's, this is not okay. This is what you're doing. You're not seeing this correctly. This is what you're doing. The thing that you say is most important to yourself, which is honoring me, is the opposite of what you're actually doing. You need to, you need to think about this. And Paul, at that point, had a choice whether he was going to respond to that and take it in and be willing to change how he was doing stuff or not. We don't, this is going to sound funny, but we don't actually know how many times in history God has made that dramatic of an intervention in people's lives. The only reason we know that for Paul is because Paul told us about it after. If he did it to Fred the next week, but Fred was like, screw this, I don't care. Well, then we never ever heard Fred's story, but we don't know if it happened, but we know Paul's because he's like, that changed my life. Yes. And then I went a different direction, right? So we don't necessarily know, but because Paul chose to be like, okay, all right, I was wrong. I was wrong. Okay, let's do this different. Then that's why we hear her story, right? So, um, yeah, the whole free will thing. I don't think God ever, very seldom that he contravenes our, our free will. I mean, there are times when I think people die because God's like, no, that is enough of that. But that's rare. It's He has taken, from my human perspective, a humongous risk in valuing free will that highly, but he wants us to be able to choose him freely and to love him as free agents, really actually love him, not like little robots or because we're scared we're going to get smushed if we don't, because that love's not worth much, right? So it's a, it's a huge risk that he takes, but he does. So anyway. And the other thing I just wanted to say um, is I also love the story of Rahab and the fact that um, she was thinking... She was part of her culture. She was, she'd obviously worked her way up as a, um, maybe she was a madam. Maybe she was, I don't know if she was running other girls. I don't know what she was doing. But it was quite clear that she was kind of outside of respectable society within Jericho. And, um, and she certainly may herself have been working in the sex trade. She may have been facilitating other people. She owned a house, apparently. So she was doing well, whatever she was doing. Um, and, but she... Like a lot of the women that I know um, who, who make their living in the sex trade are very aware. She was very aware that she was outside of what was acceptable and okay. And so one of the things that she was doing as a survivor was she was watching current events and she was listening and she was really thinking about stuff. So when she heard that those battles over there were going astonishingly in Israel's favor... And, and things where God was really blessing them, she's like, oh man, it's pretty clear who the winning team's probably going to be now that they're thinking of coming here. So she was just being really practical. She was a survivor, like a lot of the women that I know who also have made their living in the sex trade. And I, you've heard me talk about the guys when I'm, when I'm going to John school, and you hear me talk about them and sort of my bigger picture and my, 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 um, my hopes for them. I don't know, it's been a long time since maybe I've said anything about the women who uh, offer themselves in the sex trade. And I just want to just say, put on record here that, um, just so you guys maybe don't know this, but the average age that people get involved in the sex trade in Manitoba is 13. It's 13. That's not the youngest. That's the average age. Think about someone you know who's 13. Think about a girl who's 13. What grade is she in? Five, six? She's not that old, right? Somebody who, who that age or younger, one of my friends, she was 10 when she got involved because her mom threw her out of the house at minus 40 and locked the door and wouldn't let her back in, like ever, not for five minutes, never let her in again. 
Um, so how does a little kid in her pajamas, who's 10, survive in Winnipeg when it's minus 40? So those, the people that, that make their living in the sex trade, I actually, I, I would not use the word evil. I would not use the word evil. In fact, I'd be pretty careful about using the word evil. Evil feels like a deliberate choice. Evil feels like you know what you're doing and you're doing it anyway. Um, and I think that there are people that that applies to. But I think for people who are um, doing what feels like it needs to be done to survive, but who are at some point going to hopefully be open to doing something else once they realize they have a live option, like Rahab, she was like, you know what? I, I, would, I would switch teams here. This team that I've been grown up on, they have marginalized me and they, they all look down on me even though they use my services. I would rather be on the winning team. So if you guys are, have a line on the winning team, I want to I play with that. I will help you. That seems important. Yeah. And God honored that. So I think we want to make sure that we are careful how we categorize people based on behavior until we understand what is behind that. So it's just a thought. Good. That's great. Let me offer a prayer and we'll sing and then we'll lunch. Father, Father, thank you for calling us to walk with you. I've said that a couple times now. And thank you that when you call us to walk with you, you repurpose our life. And as you give us a special blessing, you give us a special responsibility. Thank you. And Lord, thank you. Ah, what's the phrase? This, Lord, this text is so delicate and so complex when it talks about a misunderstanding of what it means to be your, your people. Father, I just think of I think of people who were raised Christian, who uh, were part of the visible church but have left, and you are, you are drawing to the surface the invisible church and saying, this is the core of what I'm about. I, um, I thank you for what you're doing, Lord, and yet I'm also very aware that these are very delicate stories. Thank you that you walk with each one of us as we best need Lord, continue to glorify yourself in our eyes and remind us this week even of how you would have us uh, honor, respect you, um, represent you in the life that you've given us to live. Yeah, Lord, is there anything else I can pray for? I also, again, pray for that you would grant us your peace, for your rest and your guidance. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. New Life Ministries is located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. You are invited to join our service in person or over Zoom. Please use the Contact Us link to send an email to the church office and request the address or Zoom link. If you would like to use these podcasts as part of your home church or local church gathering, you are free to do so. We do request that you let us know. If there is any other way that we can help you in your ministry, please send us an email.